Thanks for joining us as we explore the good news of Jesus and his kingdom in the Gospel of Mark. For discussion guides and details about how to join us on Sundays, please visit fairoaks.org. Hey, uh, happy Mother's Day to the moms. Uh, Just want to say thank you for who you are and what you do. You are doing an amazing work. You are shaping your children in a profound way. Um, And I know sometimes it's not easy to see that in the grind of everyday life. I know sometimes you'd say, don't put that on me. I ain't shaping that. Um, But seriously, God is doing a profound work through you. And I hope that on a day like today, um, you could get some perspective on that um, and really that you can um, enjoy um, what God is doing through you. So happy Mother's Day to the moms. Uh, Today, what we're going to be looking at uh, is we're actually going to meet the mother of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark today. So if you have your Bible, grab it and turn with me to Mark chapter 3. The Bible has a lot of positive things to say about Jesus's mom. Uh, Jesus had a great mom, and so the Bible has all these great things to say about her. Um, But today's text is not one of those days. Um, And I think what we should see just even as we're diving in is that um, motherhood is an important role. God's uh, really designed it to have an impact on your children. But even the best moms, like no mom is perfect. Now, don't say amen if you're sitting next to your mom right now. Uh, But this is what we see in the story of the Bible. And I think that on Mother's Day, this should allow some of us to uh, breathe out a little bit. Um, But then if we could have some real talk, like, let's just be really honest that um, family is a complicated thing. And what we're going to see in our text today in this wild and crazy story, like I I would just say it this way, Carol even said it um, just a few moments ago, that today can be a roller coaster of emotions for so many of us. And what we're going to see in our text today um, in this messy story about how Jesus's family thinks he's crazy is we're going to see what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus. And we're going to see how Jesus in his great glory and grace can actually redeem uh, the painful parts of our messy family stories. Are you ready? Okay. Couple moms are ready, I hear there. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 7, says this Jesus departed with his disciples to the sea, and a large crowd followed from Galilee, and a large crowd followed from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, and all around Tyre and Sidon. So I know you have your first century map in your head, but for those of you that don't, that's saying north, south, east, and west. Uh, This is no longer a regional crowd. The crowds are growing, and they're literally coming from all over. Um, Then a large crowd came to him because they heard about everything he was doing. Then he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. Since he had healed many, all who had diseases were pressing on to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he would sternly warn them not to make him known. Then Jesus went up on a mountain and he summoned those he wanted and they came to him. He appointed 12 whom he also named apostles to be with him and to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. He appointed the 12 to Simon. He gave the name Peter and James, the son of Zebedee. And to his brother, he gave the name Boagners. That is the son of thunder. 
Andrew, Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So uh, before we get to this story about Jesus's family, uh, Mark gives us kind of a summary of the ministry of Jesus so far. Jesus is going around and he's proclaiming the good news. We've been looking at this for several weeks now. Uh, the kingdom of God is among you. God's kingdom, God's rule, God's reign is invading this broken world and bringing light and pushing back darkness. And so he proclaims that message wherever he goes. And then he demonstrates that, act, that message through his actions. He heals the sick. He restores what God had intended, and then he cast out the demons. This is what Jesus does, is he preaches the gospel in word and in deed, demonstrating the good news with his actions and proclaiming the good news with his words. Um, and as he's doing this, Mark tells us that the crowds, they're really growing. They're coming from all over. And so there's now a concern that Jesus is going to be crushed. So to put this in modern categories for you, I would say, um, if you could remember concerts before kind of all of this happened, um, imagine a crowd of 14-year-old girls at a Justin Bieber concert. That's exactly what's going on here, is they're pressing in around him. They want to be touched by him. They want to be healed by him. They're amazed by him. And so the crowds are coming from all over, and the disciples are like, we got to get a boat, or they're going to trample Jesus. And so Jesus gets on to the boat, because the crowds, they're really growing. Now, um, some of you, uh, if you're more extroverted, you might hear that and go, this is awesome. Like, that should be the end of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is popular, and let's tell everyone about Jesus, because Jesus is awesome. And Jesus is awesome, but um, Mark is a little bit more skeptical of the crowds than you and maybe I would be. See, in the Gospel of Mark, he shows that the crowds are inherently fickle, and so when Jesus is healing people and giving out free lunches, like we're going to see in a couple of weeks, the crowd's there all for him. They're like, yes, Jesus, you're awesome. Um, and then when he starts doing some stuff they don't expect, when the religious leaders kind of whip him up into a frenzy, they turn on him and they're like, crucify him. We don't know who this is. We don't want this guy. In Mark, this is a theme that the crowds are kind of all over the place. They're incredibly fickle. Um, and before you're too harsh on the crowds, um, the reason they're fickle is because these are people who are interested in Jesus. They are intrigued by Jesus. They've maybe come because they've heard the report of Jesus, but they don't yet personally know Jesus. These are people who want to explore the claims of Jesus. These are people that have come out because they've heard a great tale about this Jesus, but these are not people who have personally met Jesus and had a relationship with Jesus. And, and that's kind of the distinction between the crowd and the disciples, and, and some of you, I know that's where you are today. You're here today um, because you are curious about Jesus. You want to know about Jesus. You've heard some things about Jesus. You wonder, can Jesus maybe answer the longings of my heart that have come up over the past year? And if that's where we're at, uh, where you're at, we are glad that you are here um, something we see in Mark is that Jesus loves the crowds. Jesus is going to feed the crowds in a couple of weeks. Like Jesus loves uh, those that would come and want to explore his person and message. Um, so Jesus loves the crowd. We're glad you're here. Uh, I also want you to see, though, that Jesus has an agenda. Um, Jesus, he wants to um, move you from the crowd to the inside track. He wants to take you from being intrigued by him to actually personally knowing him. Jesus doesn't want to just draw a big crowd. 
Um, Jesus wants to draw people, individuals out of the crowd into a personal relationship with himself. And so if I could say it this way, if you're here, you're checking out Jesus, we're glad you're here. Um, My desire for you is that you wouldn't just hear about Jesus here, um, but that you would get to hear directly from Jesus, that you would meet the living Jesus here, and that you would go from intrigued to personally knowing him. And that's what Jesus does here. He, the crowds are growing and he goes up onto this mountain and he calls um, 12 guys out of the crowd. Um, and we see this in verse 14. He tells us, um, Mark tells us why he called them out of the crowd. And this is just a great definition for discipleship because what he's doing is he's moving these guys from intrigued in the crowd to committed disciples. This is the movement that Jesus wants for all of us. And so let's look at it in verse 14. There's really two components, two purposes to Jesus calling these men. Um, the first is to be with him. So, so I don't know uh, what your vision of the Christian life is. Sometimes it, we think about discipleship, like I've got to do these things for Jesus. I've got to know these things. I've got to accomplish these things. Jesus has a long checklist for me and I've got to get busy at it. But according to Mark, before discipleship is a task, discipleship is a relationship. That Jesus calls these men out of the crowd to be with him, to know him, to be loved by him. And it's as they are with him that we get to the second purpose. So discipleship is first and foremost about a relationship. Jesus calls them out to be with him. And then as they are with him, he sends them out to do what he does. That's what this talk about preaching and having authority to cast out demons. That's what that's all about. Now, you might have heard that and said, surely that was for them. That can't be for us today because I'm no preacher and I dang sure am not going to go around casting out any demons. Anyone feel this? Um, We got one honest person. Great. Uh, The the thing is, we'll we'll talk more about demons as we get into the gospel of Mark. Um, But the thing to really see, the thing to really notice here is... um, This idea of preaching and casting out demons is exactly what Mark just said the summary of Jesus's ministry is. In other words, what he's saying is he calls these men to be with him and then he sends them out to do the things that Jesus has been doing for three chapters now, to proclaim the good news of God's reign invading this broken world and to demonstrate that good news through practical action. And so um, if you want to think about it this way, what Jesus is saying is he's calling these men to be with him and from relationship with him out of an overflow of that to continue on his mission to proclaim the good news about Jesus in word and in deed wherever they go. And you might think, okay, deed, that sounds nice, but I'm no preacher. According to the Bible, each and every Christian, each and every disciple, um, after being with Jesus, we are going to be filled with good news that we're meant to spread in our schools, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, and in our workplace. So you might not ever get up and give a formal sermon, but your life is a sermon. Your conversations are a sermon. And this is the point that Jesus calls these disciples to be with him. And as he brings life to them, it's meant to flow through them to the world around them. And so that's the second component. Jesus calls them to join him on his mission. Um, What Jesus is essentially doing here is he's really restoring humanity uh, to our intended state of being. 
Uh, if, if you go to page one of the Bible, which we like to go there a lot here, it's kind of the origins that help us understand everything that come next. If you go to page one of the Bible, you'll see that humans were made to live in a relationship with God. God created human beings uh, to live in relationship with himself um, and then to partner with him in taking God's glory and spreading it over the ends of the earth. Now, God didn't need us. He could have just spread his glory out. He could have just directly revealed himself across the globe. But you go page one of your Bible. This is what it means to be an image bearer, to be an icon, to be a living statue of the living God that as we go in our neighborhoods and workplaces, as we are filled in our relationship with him, we reflect his goodness, his beauty, his love, and his justice and his righteousness wherever we go. And this was our purpose. You go page one, you'll see God creates humanity to partner with him in taking the good garden of Eden and making the rest of the cosmos look like that garden, just full of God's glory, full of God's beauty, full of God's majesty. And um, by the time you get to page two of the Bible, sin enters the picture, sin fractures everything, sin breaks everything. And so we've lost our purpose. And it's why there's so much evil in the world today. It's why you might feel such an angst about your own life. Like, what am I supposed to be doing with my life? Because apart from a relationship with God, you can never do what you were actually made to do. You can only grasp at little shadows of the ultimate purpose. And from page two of the Bible on, God is at work to redeem what was lost in the fall and to restore our purpose. And that is what Jesus is doing here. He calls these men to be with him, to be in relationship with himself, to restore that most important relationship. And then he sends them out to join him on his mission, to spread his good news, to spread his glory across the region, across Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is a moment of new creation. We're getting like a start over on humanity. A new humanity is being born here. And and it's, um, it's a particularly beautiful moment because of what kind of people are called into that new humanity. Um, I don't know about you, if you were to envision, if God wanted to just start over with the world, like if you were to pick 12 names, who would make it on that list if you were, if you were making the names? Um, I, I don't know about you, um, but I think my list of names might be the type of people that I respect and I admire. Um, I wouldn't really go out of my way to put my enemies on the list. I wouldn't go out of my way to put anyone that I thought was shady on the list. But if you look at these names, um, we could preach a whole sermon on these names. Um, some of you are looking at me like, really? Don't tempt me. We could totally do a whole sermon on these names. I just want to point out one thing today. These names are diverse. Like this group, they come from all over the place. Um, let, let me just point out two names in here. You have Matthew, the tax collector. Now we met him last week. If you were here with us last week, tax collectors, they were buddy, buddy with Rome. He was a Jewish person. So he shouldn't have liked Rome because they're occupying the Holy land, but he's kind of capitulated and sided with the occupiers and said, if I can make some money off of this deal, then I'll wrong the Jewish people, my own people in order to get rich. So tax collectors, they're not super popular. Um, we said last week, they're kind of like politicians, if you can envision that. Um, and then on the other side of this 12, you've got Matthew is just one example. Then you get this guy in verse 18 uh, named Simon that Mark calls Simon the Zealot. Uh, now, what zealots were uh, is at this point in history is this was a distinct political movement, and they really had one goal. They wanted to get Rome out of the Holy Land. 
So basically the opposite of a tax collector. If a tax collector was kind of making friendly with the occupying forces, the zealots said, we need to get the occupiers out of here. And the zealots, about a generation after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, will actually go to arm against Rome. And it doesn't end good for them. They get wiped out. I don't know why I'm giving you a history lesson right now. The point is, these men come from diametrically opposed worldviews. On the one hand, you've got someone that says, hey, Rome is cool. We should be good with the occupiers. On the other hand, you said, we should kill them all. We need to get them out of the Holy Land. And Jesus calls both of these men into the same small group. How do you think that's going to work out? Um, Like, I've struggled for years to articulate how crazy this is. And then we got 2020. And then I'm like, oh, no, it's like having a Democrat and a Republican in a small group. This is like having someone that's pro-wearing masks and anti-wearing masks in the same small group. This is like having someone that says we should be worshiping inside right now and someone that says, no, listening to the chainsaws out here with the fresh blowing air. I mean, like, right? This is having people all over the divide and yet somehow they're surviving. Somehow they make it. And the point I think Mark is making from the very beginning is that Jesus doesn't draw one type of person. It's not like the zealots are into him and the tax collectors who comply with Rome, they're left on the outside. What he's saying is it's people from all sorts of walks of life. And we could do it with all the names on this list that Jesus grabs this diverse crowd that would have nothing in common that otherwise would probably want to strangle each other. And he puts them in a small group and somehow he transforms all their lives and they go on to change the world. And so I don't know about you, that gives me hope in 2020 for our church as we try to navigate, hey, what's it look like? Where are we going to meet? How are we going to do this? How, how are our small groups going to do when we touch on something? Are we going to offend one another or in love? Are we going to say, okay, we've got Jesus in common. I think you're crazy about that, but I love you anyway. That's the kind of community that we see birthed here, that having Jesus in common is so significant. It is such a significant relationship. It just trumps every other identity marker about us. Now hear me, it doesn't make those go away. Simon's still a zealot. Simon's still got his thoughts about the occupying army. But that now becomes secondary. What becomes primary is he's a disciple of Jesus and he's a disciple alongside his now friend, Matthew. And that leads to some interesting transforming things. And so, like I said, this is a moment of new creation a new humanity is being born and it's a diverse group. Jesus calls this diverse group out of the crowd and, and so if you've ever thought like, man, I'm not sure I could be a Christian. I'm not sure I fit in. Like this list of names just takes that away from you. That all types of people are welcomed in Jesus's new humanity. That he doesn't discriminate based on preference or thought or voting patterns. That Jesus will pull anybody in to be with him, to transform us, and to send us out with a new mission and a new purpose. But not everyone is joining this new humanity. There's a new creation on the horizon. It's a beautiful moment. Jesus, it's like literally a mountaintop experience. And he's calling these men to himself and beautiful things are happening. But then we read this next. Verse 20. Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he is out of his mind. So here we go with Jesus's family. 
um, Jesus's family, they hear the reports about what Jesus is doing. And I, I want you, because it could be so easy to go, you dum-dums, what's wrong with you? Jesus isn't crazy. He's God come to save us. We have the end of the book, okay? I want you to put yourself in their shoes. Um, they hear the reports about what Jesus is doing. I just, I want you to use your imagination to picture the dinner table conversation. Like, hey mom, did you hear Jesus is out there again proclaiming that God's kingdom has arrived in himself? Oh yeah, I know Jesus does that. He's going to grow out of it. I mean, come on, he's going to grow out of it. No, no, no. He, he's doing it now and he's not just proclaiming on his own. He's got all these diverse followers from all walks of life and there's crowds coming from the north, south, east, and west and they're all following him and he's so busy. He's not even eating. Like you hear how that might fire Mary up there? Like he's not eating? What? So they say, he's crazy. He's out of his mind. We've got to go down there and restrain him. The, the verb in the original language, it's a very violent word for physically taking control of. I, I'm, I'm literally, I think a best modern equivalent would be like, we're going to put him in a straitjacket, we're going to zip his mouth, or we're just going to take his phone away and take away his access to the digital world. And so they go down there to try to restrain Jesus. Why? Because they think he's crazy. You say, how do I know their hearts? The Bible tells me. The Holy Spirit knows their hearts. And he wrote it in the book. They thought he was crazy. Now, let's have some real talk. Um, It's one thing for Jesus' brothers and sisters to think this. Right? Like, if your sibling said, hey, I'm God, stepped into human history to save it, you would have a hard time believing that. Amen? But what about Mary? Like, what about Mary? Like, she, if you know the Christmas story, Mark doesn't give us the Christmas story. This is the first time we meet Mary and Mark. But if you know the Christmas story from the other Gospels, Mary had an angel show up to her before she was ever pregnant and said, hey, here's how this is going to go down. There's not going to be an earthly father. Um, The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. And God's son, the second member of the Trinity, is going to enter your womb. And he's going to enter human history. He's going to put on flesh. And he's going to save humanity from the inside. So Mary knew from the very beginning who Jesus is. Um, Mary, she, she knew there was no earthly father. Like she of all people would know that. And so I don't, I don't know about you, but I'm reading this text this week and I'm like, Mary, what gives? Now, some of you, you're looking down. Some of you are looking at me like, how are you going to go there on Mother's Day? But here's the thing, I want to say this especially on Mother's Day, Um, maybe particularly because this is Mother's Day, because um, whatever her reasons, like I don't know her reasons. I I look at verse 20 and I go, okay, maybe she hears Jesus isn't eating, he's so busy, she wouldn't be the first mom to kind of rush in on her grown child and make sure that they're eating well enough. I, I, I don't know her motives, But what I know from verse 31 is she shows up with the family to try to restrain him. And at some level, she goes along with this. And the reason that I'm going there on Mother's Day is because I want you to hear this. Like, on the whole, Mary has a great influence on Jesus's life. She is one of the great godly women of the Bible. And don't worry, she'll come around in the end. She'll be a part of the early church. She's probably there as this is being read going, oh my goodness, I remember that day. Um, The point I want to make, though, is if you're a mom, I want you to look right at me. Um, your worst parenting moments don't get to define you. The grace of God does. Um, That is not what Mary is known for. Like no mom is perfect, but on the whole, she is a good mom that God uses in the life of Jesus in some profound ways. And so, yes, she had a bad day. 
But that doesn't get to define her. The grace of God does. And as we zoom out over the course of her life, we see what the grace of God does to a person. So take heart. Um, If you're a mom, if you're in here right now going like, man, I'm not crushing it right now. Like mom goals are not happening right now. Just take heart. You never raised the son of God and thought he was crazy. So you've got one up on Mary right now. Take heart. Um, For all of us though, here's the point I want to make for all of us. Uh, Do you think that it might have been painful for Jesus to have his mom think he's crazy? Do you think that might have hurt Jesus to know that after decades of life, that they would look at him and go, nah, like, like we'll love you as long as you stay quiet about it. But if you start speaking up about, we're going to have to restrain you because we don't want you to embarrass our family. Do you think that that would be hard for Jesus to experience that rejection? Um, I think it would be. I think we've all kind of experienced pain in our own family of origin stories. And that's, again, why today can be somewhat of a roller coaster. Um, but even more than that, I think that's exactly the part, point Mark is making because of what we see next. So what we have uh, right here in the Gospel of Mark is the first example of what is known by Bible nerds um, is the sandwich technique. So um, some of you, you are waiting for this. I'm just kidding. But uh, this is, this is I, I need to explain this because we're going to see it throughout the Gospel of Mark. What Mark loves to do is he loves to take one story about Jesus's family rejecting him and then shove another story right in the middle of that story. So you get part one of the story of Jesus's family rejecting him. You get another story in the middle, and then you get the conclusion of Jesus's family rejecting him. And this sandwich technique, as it's cleverly called, usually Bible nerds aren't this great with what they named it. So maybe there was a good communications major involved, but you've got a sandwich. You've got the top bun, you've got the middle toppings, and then you've got the bottom bun there. And uh, what we're going to read next is the sandwich story, the middle story. And what that middle story is made to do is to really drive home the weight of the primary story. So we're going to read another story that happens in the middle of this. And then we're going to come back to Jesus's family rejecting him. And after reading this middle story, it's going to function like commentary on what's happening on the outside. This middle story is going to help us feel the weight and the burden of what's happening with Jesus's family, and it's going to clarify for what's happening with Jesus's family. So let's now look at this middle story. Verse 22. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. So he summoned them, and he spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan is, um, opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, people will be forgiven all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So uh, the religious leader, this is a wild story. You're like, that's telling me about Jesus's family. Well, let's look at it. Uh, The religious leaders, they see Jesus casting out demons. And can we just stop for a moment and recognize that even Jesus's opponents can't deny his power? 
They see Jesus casting out demons. They're like, how does he do that? He has such incredible power, but they're not willing to recognize that it's the power of God as Jesus claims. And so they're like, okay, what alternative theories can we come up with to meet our prior bias? Ah, I got it. Let's say he's doing that by the power of Beelzebub. This is a term for the prince of demons, uh, kind of the ruler of the uh, evil part of the unseen realm. Uh, we, we see his name throughout the Bible, also known as Satan, and that's who Jesus refers to here. So they basically say, oh, Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan, because they say there's two powerful beings on the world that can do this. There's God who can do anything, and there's Satan who can command other spirits. And so what must be going on here through Jesus's great power is Satan has filled him with the demon, and through the power of that demon, he's doing what no mere human can do. That's their conclusion, And Jesus' response to it is fascinating. I love Jesus. He does not beat around the bush. His answer is basically to that charge, that criticism. Basically, Jesus' family has said he's crazy, and now the religious ruling elite say, uh, he's not just crazy, he's demon-possessed. And Jesus' response is, that's dumb. That's my, you're not going to see that in the text. That's my summary of verses, uh, let's see, 23 to 26. He says, no, that's dumb. Um, Satan is evil, but he's not stupid, okay? He's not going to drive out one of his own demons. To He's not going to allow one demon to drive out another demon. That would mean civil war in the unseen realm. And Satan is far too strategic, far too bent on destroying God's people to allow division in his ranks. So you think I'm doing this by the power of a demon? Like, that's not even logical. You just sound stupid. You should just stop talking. That's the first thing Jesus says to them. And, and, and then in verse 27, I think this is really the primary driving force, though it's not what gets highlighted today, and we'll talk about it. He talks about entering the strong man's house. And what he says is, no, the, that's not only dumb, it misses the point, because the fact that I'm able to drive out demons, we said this a couple of weeks ago, it's proof of Jesus's message. It's proof that the kingdom of God has invaded this broken world and is pushing back darkness with the light of God's kingdom. That's what verse 27 is about. He says, no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder it. In other words, no one can enter the world. That's the strong man's house. Because according to the Bible, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan is called the prince of the air, the ruler of this broken world. And what Jesus is saying, no one can simply enter into the world and start freeing people from demonic oppression unless they're stronger than the strong man. But if I'm casting out demons because I'm who I say I am, that God's kingdom is invading this broken world in me and that I am casting out demons because I'm stronger than the strong man, then you're not only dumb, you're in danger because you have just called the only one that can rescue you, the devil. And that leads to this profound warning Jesus gives them. And some of you, that's all you heard when I read this text. You've been waiting to see if we'll mention it. Verse 28 and 29, I'm going to read it again because this is the, these are the verses that get all the play here. He says, truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now, there's so much bad teaching about that verse right there that I want you to hear me clearly say this. Jesus is not referring to some unnamed sin. 
in this text. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not some random thing that's disconnected from what's going on in the narrative here. Um, I've heard people speculate, and I'm sure you have, that it's everything from adultery to committing suicide to, um, I mean, voting for the wrong guy in the wrong election. Like people will say that, oh, that's the unforgivable sin. That's the unforgivable sin. Usually that's how you can tell a religious person is they'll call an unforgivable sin the sin that they can least tolerate. But Jesus isn't saying there's this vague thing out there and careful you don't actually do it. We have to connect it to what's going on in the text because the Pharisees didn't go, huh, what does he mean by that? The Pharisees, they again want to kill him because they know exactly what he means by this. What's going on in the text, let's just refresh ourselves from the last several minutes. Jesus is casting out demons. And the religious leaders, they see the sign that God's kingdom has invaded this broken world, that darkness is on the retreat. And the religious leaders, they see it with their own two eyeballs and they refuse to believe it. In fact, they have the gall to accuse Jesus of being demon possessed. And they criticize Jesus. And rather than responding with repentance and faith, as Jesus said in Mark 1, 14 and 15, the good news is here. So the response is to repent of your sin and believe what Jesus has done. Rather than responding that way, they respond with rejection and criticism of the Messiah. And Jesus's point is, if you see the work of God and you think it's the devil, then you will die in your sins because there's no one that can save you from the strong man but me. And that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is rejecting the work of God in your life to help you see Jesus clearly, to see his beauty, to see his glory, to see what he has done to accomplish our forgiveness. It's saying, nope, I'm not gonna see that. I'm gonna call that the devil. What Jesus says is if you do that, you will not experience forgiveness because it will keep you from coming to me in repentance and who can save you from your sins but me alone? And so, man, like, it is so quiet out here in this moment. I just want to say, if, if you've wondered, have I struggled with this? Ha, have I committed the unforgivable sin? If you've ever wondered that, like, I would just encourage you, you probably haven't. Because someone that thinks God is the devil doesn't care what God thinks. So if your heart is pricked going, have I done this? Take heart with the main point of verse 28. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, all sins and all blasphemies will be forgiven. The only thing that won't be forgiven is not coming and asking for forgiveness. The only thing that won't be forgiven is saying, God, I think you're a liar. I prefer evil to good. I don't want your forgiveness. I want to reject you. And so, man, if you are pricked in conscience going, have I done this, then take heart with verse 28. If you come to Jesus in repentance and faith, it's a sign that you haven't. And if you come to him in repentance and faith, every sin will be forgiven. Not just your past sin, your present struggles and the future ones you hadn't even struggled with. That's how big the cross of Jesus Christ is. And I camp out here because there's this fear out there that have I gone too far? Have I out the cross of Jesus? And I think Satan must get a kick out of how much we worry about the unforgiven sin and miss the whole point about if we come to him and ask for forgiveness in his name, there's no sin with more power than his cross. There's nothing too great that he can't deliver us from. And so if you have worried, come to Jesus this morning and know that all sins will be forgiven those who come to him in faith and say, Jesus, can you take these things away from me? Because that's why he has come into the world. 
Every sin will be forgiven. And the question Mark wants to ask you and to me is, will you come to Jesus to experience the forgiveness of sins? Will you let him tie up the strong man of Satan's sin and death in your life and lead you out into freedom from the captivity that you are living in? Or will you reject Jesus like these religious leaders who see the work of God and call it the work of the devil? Now to the final layer of the sandwich. And remember, I said all of this is commentary on what Jesus's family has done. So think about what Mark's saying at this point when he comes back to Jesus's family. Verse 31. His mothers and brothers came and standing outside, they sent word to him and they called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, hey, look, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. I always want you to feel the humanity of Jesus. Just listen to this. It's like they're saying, hey, Jesus, your mom's here. Verse 33, he replied to them, who are my mother and brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So we've got the top layer of the sandwich is Jesus's family thinks he's crazy. In between, we see that the religious leaders, they're rejecting him too. And everyone who rejects Jesus will be on the outside. Whoever believes in Jesus will come in on the inside and have forgiveness of sins. And here at the bottom layer, the question is, which one will you be on? Will you reject Jesus or will you trust Jesus? Here in the bottom layer, Jesus's family finally show up and they show up pretty entitled. They call from the outside. Now, we might not get this because we don't live in a high honor culture. If anything, in our culture, it's like kind of popular to like distance yourself from your family. So I remember like, hey, Chad, your mom's here. It's like, oh my goodness, I don't, like, no, I gotta get in here. In this culture, you wouldn't do that. Hey, your mom's here. Family is on the inside. Family comes first. You go to your family. You honor your family. Like family comes first and foremost. That was the cultural narrative at the time. And Jesus, um, he knows what's in their heart. If you weren't here uh, two weeks ago, Jesus knows what's in our heart. So good morning. Jesus knows what's in your heart. Um, He knows that they think he's crazy. And knowing that they think he's crazy, rather than going outside, Jesus says, who are my mother and brothers? I I know they think they're on the inside, just like these religious leaders think they're on the inside. But who are my mother and brothers? And and, and just imagine you're in that crowd. Like, do you think they might have been like, um, the lady and the people outside saying, Jesus, we're here to pick you up. Like, what do you mean, who are your mother and brothers? The folks outside that look vaguely like you. The folks outside calling your name. The folks outside from Nazareth. Like, that's your mother and brothers. And Jesus looks at the crowd. He looks at those seated around him, which is the place where his disciples would have been, in close proximity to Jesus. And he goes, nah, it's you. It's you are my true family. And in fact, it's whoever does the will of God, whoever repents of sin and believes in the gospel, that is my true family. I mean, this would have been shocking. The family who in this culture were the insiders and this Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector who are the outside and Jesus's economy because the family have rejected Jesus and this tax collector and the Zealot believe Jesus, it's been flipped completely around. And now it's his disciples who are his true family and it's family who's left on the outside. And and you might hear this and go, well, that doesn't sound very loving of Jesus. Doesn't the Bible just say, honor your father and mother? And yes, the Bible does say that. It's Mother's Day. I'm contractually obliged to tell you this. 
The Bible says to honor your father and mother. But Jesus, he, he knows that there's a more important command than that, and it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And what Jesus is saying here is that I know culture says family comes first, but I'm telling you more important than that is God comes first. God comes first. And so if my family are going to reject me, if they're going to reject what God has done to redeem this world, then whoever believes in me, they get to be a part of God's family. And that family being with me, learning to live life in my kingdom, that is always going to come first. Now, he's not disrespecting his mom. You've got to stick with the narrative. When Jesus is on the cross bleeding and dying, he's going to cry out to one of his disciples and say, you take care of my mama. So it's not that he doesn't care, but it's that Jesus has his priorities straight, that for Jesus, God comes first. Being with God, learning to live life in his kingdom and being equipped to go out on his mission will always, always come first. And, and, and I know some of you are going, well, that sounds like a cult. But, but I would just challenge you with this. If your primary relationship with Jesus isn't right, you won't be able to love anything in your life right. You might be kind of okay. You might be better than some. We talked about this with religion last week. You can compare yourself to others, not to God's glorious standards. But if your primary relationship with God isn't right, you'll never be able to love your family right. You'll make impossible asks of them. You, you won't have the freedom to love and to serve them like God has called you to because you're asking them to be little gods for you. Or you'll be embarrassed of them because you're asking these other things like your popularity to be gods out there for you. And when your family shows up, that threatens your gods. And so you got to send your family out of there. Either way, unless your relationship with God is right, you can't love anything else in your life right. It's only when we are with Jesus and we experience the love of God that our hearts are filled and made whole enough to love anything else with the passion and the zeal and the service and the commitment that everything else deserves to be loved with. And so it's not unloving of Jesus to do this. In fact, I would say to you, the most loving thing that you can do for your family is to say, God comes first. I'm going to love Jesus. I'm going to experience his love. And out of that, I'm going to give that love to my family. And that will make you a far more loving, active positive member of your family than if family came first and you said, Jesus, you're going to have to wait on the sideline. And this is why Jesus came to be with us, to make it possible for us to have a relationship with God by dying in our place, to remove the sin that stood between us, to bind up the strong man of Satan's sin and death, and to set us free in a new life with God. This is why Jesus came, to free us from our sin, to bring us back into relationship with God, and to transform us through that relationship into the father, into the mother, into the brother, into the sister, into the son, and the daughter that we were made to be, and to send us back into our families with good news and great and power and redemption and healing in Jesus's name. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus not only redeems us from our sin and he puts his spirit in us to be with us and to lead us and to guide us into this new walk with God, he has put us into a community through which he has promised to be at work in our lives to help bring these things, to bring this new identity, this new relationship with God into greater reality in our life here and now. And I would submit to you, that is how Jesus redeems our messy family experiences. 
I want to ask you to do something right now. I want you to just look around at the people on this patio right now. Go ahead and just take a moment to turn around and look at the people here. People you are looking at right now, according to the Bible, are your brothers and your sisters. And I know we might fight like cats and dogs on Facebook. I know we might have very different ideas about all of these secondary things. But according to Jesus, that if you love Jesus, if you trust Jesus, if you have salvation in his name, then these are your brothers and sisters. And you have more in common with the people out here than the people outside of here that vote exactly like you do, that like all the same food that you do, that um, have all the same preferences as you do. You have more in common here in the scope of eternity. You'll spend eternity together. This is your spiritual family, the new family, the new humanity Jesus came to bring. This is it right here, folks. And just like your family of origin has shaped you and participated in making you the person that you are today, so the church, this new spiritual family, is meant to shape you and to help you see Jesus more clearly and walk with him more fully. And I know some of you are like, yeah, but they're not my age. They don't know what it's like to struggle like me. They don't know what I'm going through. But according to the New Testament, it's the fact that you're not similar that you can help one another because that means you won't have the same blind spots. And the point is that Jesus having a relationship with him is so significant, it trumps every other secondary marker about us. And the church becomes a place where um, cats and dogs can come together. People from all walks of life can come together with Jesus in common and say, okay, uh, I think you're nuts, but I love him. And he says, you're family, so let's go ahead and do this. And frankly, I think half my family's nuts and I love them, so I can love you too. And it's a place where we become to learn and treat each other as family and to press in and to love one another. And it's as we keep our eyes on Jesus, that's the glue that holds us together. And then we get to help one another see Jesus more clearly because we don't have the same blind spots. We get to encourage one another in our walk with God. We get to pray for one another. We get to be family because Jesus has made us family. And so this is how Jesus redeems our messy family experiences is we come from imperfect families, varying levels of imperfection to be sure. But in Christ, we all get to come into a new spiritual family that um, helps us to go back into those families and those relationships more whole because we're walking with Jesus. And, and I would say this, that um, the church not only helps us to walk with Jesus, but the church can make up the gaps in our family of origin experience. And, and here's what I mean by that. Like Mother's Day, um, I lost my mom eight years ago. And so Mother's Day is a really complex day for me where I have this great mother in the home in Karen. Um, but, but I have this loss of my mom's not here. And, and, and so it's a complicated, it's a roller coaster of a day. And I know several of you, for your own reasons, your own stories, it's like a roller coaster of a day. And the beautiful thing is Jesus not only gives us salvation in his name and promises to lead us to a day where death is no more, but he places us in a spiritual family where we can have spiritual mothers and fathers and sons and daughters to make up the gaps in our story. Like, I'll just tell you this, like to name one, I have been blessed by spiritual mothers in my church family um, for several years now. We've only been here a few months, but I'll name one is Joy Rosenberg. Uh, she, since I've been here, has loved me in ways that would make my mother proud. 
And, and so, like, in the church, we, we get, like, several mothers, spiritual mothers and fathers. And some of you, I know this is a painful day. Maybe you haven't been able to have kids. Maybe relationship with your kids isn't good. And this is not saying that you shove those emotions, you pretend it doesn't exist, but it says as you bring those difficult emotions to the Lord, he will not only heal you, but he will also redeem that hurt by giving you spiritual children to love in your church if you would only take the responsibility seriously. And this is the fullness of what Jesus has done. I never want the gospel to be me and Jesus here. The gospel is me and Jesus overflowing into me and you that takes over the whole world with the good news of God's reign. And that's exactly what Jesus came to bring. And so my question in closing is, has that been your experience with church? Um, Like we'll be talking about this in our Zoom groups this week, but if you're not in a Zoom group, I would encourage you to go on our website, fairoaks.org, and download the discussion guide and talk with someone about this sermon. To talk, open your life up and apply some of these things. Because this is where it begins, is opening our lives to one another with Jesus in common and having a relationship. Jesus can do a profound work to make up the gaps in our own family of origin experience and to powerfully shape us to see him more clearly and love him more fully and go out of here more free in the gospel. And I think that's what we all want. Amen? Okay, well, let me pray for us, and then we'll come back in just a moment after the next song and celebrate communion that really caps off this idea that Jesus makes us family. But for now, let me pray for us. Um, Father, thank you for loving us, for adopting us into your family through Jesus Christ. Um, I thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus, and I pray that um, this morning that you would allow Jesus' words about all sins being forgiven to ring, uh, ring out in our hearts this morning, that we would see him more clearly, and that we would come in a posture of repentance to receive the good news of his salvation. And I pray not only that we might experience a closer relationship with you this morning, but I pray that you would help us to see that you've placed us in a community to help, that we have been given a new family in Jesus. Would you help glue us to this family more? Would you uh, make this family feel more like family and profoundly shape our walk with you in the coming season? We love you. We ask all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.